Welcome to the WNCT Podcast Network. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of What the Politics. I'm Emily here, and I have Victoria as well. And whoop de doo today is election day, everybody. It is November 3rd. Today has been long awaited in anticipation. Um, we got a lot of stuff going on here at WNCT, and we wanted to go ahead and bring on a special guest today to kind of get the ball rolling on um, election day and to kind of, you know, get some feedback, get some information and just kind of discuss it a little bit before, you know, the big election uh, results come out. So we are joined today by Dr. Francia again. He joined us for our first podcast ever. So we are super happy to have him back for today. So Dr. Francia, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Of course. So tonight is the election night. Now, from obviously your political science professor, but from, you know, just a voter's standpoint, how are you feeling about this election tonight? Oh, I'm excited. And I I would answer that either way. As a political scientist, I'm excited. And as uh, just as an everyday person, it's exciting to me uh, to be anytime you have a presidential election. We only have these every four years for the biggest electoral prize in the nation. And, you know, the Olympics come every four years and they're fun and presidential elections come every four years and they're fun. So I'm excited. Right. So um, even though today is a very important day in U.S. history, we did want to choose a topic that we felt could kind of stem away from what the election is about and, or excuse me, that we can sim away from Election Day in particular so so that we can carry on this podcast more, uh, past just today. And so the topic that we'll be talking about today are political interest groups and lobbyists and their role in democracy. And can you tell us what your own background is with this topic? Well, I've uh, taught courses at ECU that address that subject. In fact, one in particular uh, is a special topics course at ECU, and and it's uh, titled Interest Groups and Lobbying. So we we have an entire class devoted to that. But in my introduction to American national government, when I've taught that course, there's at least a week, sometimes a little bit more, maybe a week and a half, where we spend time devoted to to interest groups and lobbying. So it's covered in that class and in my campaigns and elections class which is sort of fitting for election day, <laughs> the campaigns and elections class uh, spends and devotes quite a bit of time to organizations like super PACs and uh, 501Cs and other organizations that would be uh, under the umbrella of interest groups. And um, so I, you know, I've done certainly in the classroom cover a lot of those topics. Uh, as a researcher, uh, I've done, I've done work that, um, covers organized labor, which would fall under the category of interest groups. I've done work on uh, women's political action committees, which would 
fall under the, uh, you know, under the topic of interest groups. So a lot of my writing and my research covers that topic as well. Right. So can you, let's, let's break down what a political interest group is. What do they do? How do they look like? Can you give us an example of one? Well, yeah, sure. I mean, one that would certainly come to mind is the National Rifle Association. Uh, we're in, uh, we're in North Carolina, uh, and there are quite a few folks in North Carolina who, who like their guns. So the National Rifle Association, the NRA, would be a group that I'm sure uh, most people are familiar with. Uh, when you start getting uh, up there in age, uh, I'm not quite there. I'm not 50 yet, but for, for folks who are 50 years old and older, uh, there's AARP, uh, which used to be uh, the American Association of Retired Persons, but now they just go by AARP. And AARP has uh, got more members in it than, than any interest group in the United States. Well, that's very cool. And so what are some of, for this election, what are some of the interest groups and lobbyists that have kind of been at the forefront of this election? Um, what are some of those topics and those, uh, you know, interests that are kind of sparking interest in this election? Okay, so I would, I would, I guess, sort of separate things. The, the lobbying is going to be done, um, you know, that's sort of, uh, that's more policy oriented. Right. If we're talking about the election, then we're talking about, you know, get out the vote efforts. Uh, we're talking about the political ads. And, uh, you know, there are, there are just tons and tons of those organizations. Um, sort of generally speaking, you have political action committees or PACs, and PACs will uh, give campaign contributions to candidates for uh, president, for U.S. Senate, for the U.S. House. So any, any of those federal offices Political action committees are going to give uh, campaign contributions, and they're also going to run ads through what are called independent expenditures. And independent expenditures mean that the, the, the political action committee is, is independent of the candidate's campaign. They have no coordination. And so they will, uh, they, they will raise money and put money um, into advertising, and uh, that advertising will be done through what are called those independent expenditures. The super PAC is very similar to a PAC, but with one big exception, the super PAC um, can not give a campaign contribution, but it can spend and raise unlimited sums of money all on independent expenditures. So think of a super PAC as an independent expenditure only organization. And the reason that they're allowed to raise more money from donors is that they are in, in a sense, completely independent of a candidate's campaign. The PAC is giving money to the candidate's campaign, right? But the super PAC is not. So the super PAC is, you know, one step removed from a candidate. And because of that, the Supreme Court has said that there's no potential for that super PAC to corrupt the political process. And because there's no potential to corrupt the process, the super PAC can raise as much money as it wants well, then the super PAC has tons and tons of money more than a traditional PAC does. And that means that a lot of the ads you're watching on TV right now are coming from those super PACs. Right. And so there seems to be, because of the advertisements and because of the amount of money that goes behind a candidate, there seems to be a negative reputation around lobbyists and the um whole idea of funding a candidate. Can you tell us why? 
Yeah, I think that what you're getting at is the, the notion of money being a corruptive force in politics. Is that a fair description of where you were going with that? Yes, it is. Okay, so you know, there's two there's two schools of thought on that. One school of thought is is in line with what you're suggesting, which is that uh, money can influence our elected leaders, and that has uh, the consequence of groups with more resources, particularly more money, uh, having an advantage in the political process and being able to get things that they want that say other groups and other interests that have less money are not able to get. And many would say that sort of violates the notion of a of a balanced and equal system that there's um, that there's not equilibrium in the um, in the competition of different interests. So you have all of these different interests in the United States. People organize based on what those interests are, and then we sort of compete in the political arena. And the criticism about too much money in politics is that the groups that are the best funded and have the most resources that they have these inherent advantages that give them a leg up when it comes time to make laws and policy. And to a lot of Americans and to a lot of people who are concerned about democratic government, uh, the feeling is that there's something fundamentally unfair. And so the solution to people on that side is to say that we need to limit the amount of money that goes into our elections and that goes into um, efforts to try and influence policy. And so that's one side of that debate. There's another side of this debate. The other side of this debate is that um, money is essentially tantamount to political speech, that when you raise money, at least in political elections, what are you going to do with that money? Well, you're going to go out and try to uh, purchase television ads. Mm -hmm. Well, television ads are a way for you to express your speech because that's ultimately what an ad is. And so there are uh, there's another uh, side out there that says, well, wait, hold on. If you start putting limits on the amount of money in politics, what you're effectively doing is you're you're cutting off speech and that for you know, a country that values the free exchange of ideas and that values free speech, that efforts to try and limit what people want to say in the political process is not a good thing. That we should, uh, you know, we should be encouraging more speech, not trying to cut it off. And so there's this tension between one side, which wants more political equality, and then another side in this debate that says that what we need is more freedom. And uh, and and so that that tension between political equality and political freedom is sort of at the heart of your question. And so, do you think that? As much as there might be some sort of possible corruption when it comes to funding political candidates, that they are a necessary and vital part of our democracy. Well, let's let's address the corruption question because again, there are um, there's another there's another way of looking at this. Um, okay. the, the there are folks who would say money really doesn't corrupt. That you have sort of the equivalent of a chicken or the egg problem. And mm-hmm. uh, what what some folks will do is they'll say, OK, look at look at where all the PAC money from a um, a particular corporation is going to a candidate. And now, look, the candidate voted with that corporation. Ha, we got them money corrupted. Well, not so fast. Some political scientists will tell you it may have been that the candidate was already predisposed to uh, supporting the interests of that corporation. Or maybe it's, uh, maybe it's on, let's use an example from the left. Maybe um, you have a candidate that's pro-worker, pro-labor, pro-union. They're that way from the beginning. Now they get elected. What are they going to do? They're going to vote 
pro-labor, right? Not because of the money they got, but because that's what they were, that's the reason they were motivated to run for office in the first place. Now, organized labor isn't foolish. They're going to say, well, we have a candidate who supports our issues, so what are they going to do? Well, they're going to try to help with their money and with their PACs, right, and with their membership. And so the question is, is a member of Congress or an elected official, are they voting a certain way because they were already going to vote that way, and the groups are just giving them money, you know, in a sense to keep them in office, not to influence their vote, but to just keep a friend in office? Or is it the other way around? Is it that you know, the money is actually influencing them to vote in ways that they might otherwise not have voted. And that's, and that's a debatable thing among, uh, among researchers in political science. Mm-hmm. So it's not clear cut is my point. Yeah, it's not clear cut in the literature. There's, you know, there's evidence to suggest that money matters and there's evidence to suggest uh, that money can't simply buy a vote, um, at least a roll call vote um, on a piece of legislation, that it's more complicated than that. And so moving forward with um, some of these super PACs and the way that a lot of the interest groups are going to evolve in the future, how do you see them maybe acting in the next election? What are, what are some of the things that they do now that are probably going to change in the future? All right. Let me, um, I'm going to answer that question in a minute. I did want to backtrack just one, make one last quick point, um, okay. if, because I think there's an important, um, one last important observation to throw into my last answer. Uh, money in politics does matter in one sense, and I think that there's universe near, I guess, is near universal agreement as you can find on anything political, and that is that money does does give you access as an interest group. Mm-hmm. So if you have that, you can at least get somebody to listen to what you have to say. It doesn't mean that you're going to get a congressman to necessarily vote the way you want on a piece of legislation. But campaign contributions and various ways of influencing the electoral and political process, um, if you have those resources, it does afford you access. And so that's that's one thing that uh, I would have been remiss not to mention. So I wanted to make sure I got that in. Okay, so your question, I think, was about what may be um, what's new. Yeah, so the role they play now and how they're going to evolve in the future. Yeah, well, it's hard uh, to predict the future unless you have a crystal ball, and I don't have one. But I, I would, I'll do my best to try and speculate about where things might be going. I think the one revolution that we've seen politically, um, at least in recent times, is the uh, is the way that we communicate. Uh, social media is certainly uh, something that more and more Americans use to get their information. And so groups, interest groups have membership, and that membership needs to be kept informed about the things that the group is trying to do. And the old way of doing it may have been with a, um, you know, old-fashioned snail mail, right? You get something in your mailbox, you open up the, the envelope, and you read the information that the group sends you. There may have been a phone call to your house. Well, today, that's you know, you may still get that information but that way, but but not that's not the only way you're going to get it. Now you're going to open up an email and you're going to get information that way. You can go to a group's website and you can get information straight from their website. Um, and of course, again, there are there are other ways uh, that we communicate more and more through um, Facebook and through Twitter and through other sources of information. 
And so I, I you know, I imagine that we're going to see more and more in that direction where sort of the electronic revolution uh, is, it's already taken hold, but I think, you know, we'll see more and more of that um, where people who are members of uh, political organizations, interest groups, um, you know, the, the amount of information that you get electronically will probably be, you know, near a hundred percent at some point. Uh, there are certainly older people who still like hard copies of things. Um, but I think you're going to see less and less communication through paper because we're already headed that way. And certainly more and more information spread electronically. So how often would you say, you know, there's tons of interest groups, there's tons of lobbyists, there's, you know, it's an extensive group of people ranging from all sorts of topics and things like that. But how often do new interest groups kind of pop up on the scene? Oh, that's a good question. I, I It depends what type of, um, it, it really depends on circumstances, right? So what do I mean by that? Uh, you'll see a new population of interest groups when something significant has happened to disturb the status quo. Uh, there's actually a theory for this it's called disturbance theory. Uh, so, you know, for example, uh, you know, we were talking a minute ago about electronic uh, forms of communication, right? So you have a new technology that um, comes about and disrupts the way we normally do things. Well, Anytime we have something new that disrupts the status quo, somebody's got to represent those new interests. And so when we have something like that occur, then you'll see new groups pop up to defend those interests. I mean, maybe here's a better example or way to think about it. If you went back far enough in time, there were no cars, right? So there were no automobile companies. Um, well, once once people start buying cars and automobiles become part of the fabric of American society, well, then, you know, the Ford Corporation is going to make sure that its interests in the automobile industry are protected, right? Well, then on the other side, you have consumer rights groups. Uh, um, Ralph Nader famously uh, put together a, a public interest group to defend consumers against, uh, you know, uh, unsafe manufacturing in in, um, in automobiles, and so a group came out of that. But if the car doesn't get invented, right? If there, you know, if there's no automobile, then there's no Ralph Nader forming his organization. There's no automobile lobby, and and etc. So um, things when things change in society, that's when you're going to see new organizations um, pop up. So would it be fair to say, you know, obviously President Trump's um presidency, his term has been very controversial, controversial. People either love him or they hate him. So would you say that, or would it be fair to say that his presidency has, you know, maybe sparked an even higher amount of interest groups coming onto the scene because of that controversy that he kind of has created? I don't know that he's had much effect on creating more groups. I think what the, the what Trump has had as an impact the impact that Trump has had has been on um, the energy that people have, right? And the um, and probably, and I don't have, I haven't looked at the numbers on this, but I would, I would certainly um, imagine this is true. 
that membership in certain ideological interest groups has probably gone up, that donations have probably gone up and people who are saying, hey, I'm a member of that group now. Uh, so I think the, 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 the activity, the intensity, um, and membership roles themselves in existing groups, those things have probably all gone up. And then um, just kind of going away from the money and what funds political interest groups and candidates, are there ways that they play a role in government besides just funding candidates? Yeah, of course. I mean, lobbyists, look, they get, you know, we hear the word lobbyist and I think everybody recoils and thinks of these, you know, thinks of these folks and, you know, expensive suits and, you know, the, uh, you know, the expensive, you know, leather Gucci shoes and, you know, <laughs> all these other things. And they're there to sort of, you know, um, steal from the, the, the everyday American to give to their, you know, rich client who's representing some narrow self-interest. Um, you know, that's, that's sort of the stereotype that everybody has in their head, but for the vast majority of lobbyists, what they're, what they're trying to do is provide information, uh, to, uh, elected officials, uh, about, you know, that's, that represents their clients' interests. And so they're, they're there to provide information. Uh, a congressman's staff only has so many people who can do, the research when it comes to writing a piece of legislation. So it's very common that if you're trying to, you know, create legislation, that you're going to talk to the industries and the groups that are affected by that legislation. Because, you know, in a best case scenario, if you and I were to sit down and try to write legislation that was, say, I don't know, affecting higher education, we would want to talk to people who had an interest in higher education, wouldn't we? We would want to talk to those people with expertise in that area and ask them, you know, for information that they have. And so a lot of lobbyists are there to provide um, just simple good information, at least what they would consider good information, um, that best represents their client. And of course, then it's up to the congressman to weed through all of the information that they get and come up with something that they think is best for the country. And uh, you hope that the process in its, in its best form can work that way. Does it always work that way? Well, no. I mean, we have, we have, uh, you know, stories of corrupt lobbyists like Jack Abramoff uh, back in the early two thousands. And I guess Abramoff was recently in the news again for breaking some laws um, after he had quote unquote reformed himself. Um, So do you have, you do have some, uh, folks in the process uh, who give lobbying a bad name, but there are plenty of lobbyists out there who are, um, you know, who are good patriotic Americans, and they they are out there trying to provide good information to members of Congress. And I'm not saying that again. There there are these Jack Abramoffs out there. They do certainly exist, but I think the vast majority of lobbyists go about their lives trying to do the best they can. Right. I, I mean, I would agree with you definitely on that. Um, for Going, we're not going back, but for so for someone who is a voter, an average Joe who's you know kind of wants to get their foot in politics, they just kind of want to feel like they're participating, contributing in some way. How attainable is it for the average voter to participate in an interest group, to join an interest group, to join a PAC? 
Oh, well, it depends. It really depends. Like, you know, in some cases you have to be a, you know, if it's a labor organization, a labor union, you have to be a member of the union. Um, so right. in some cases it's not, not so easy. But if you wanted to join an organization like Emily's List, which is an organization that, you know, is devoted to electing uh, more women to public office, um, although in their case specifically uh, female Democrats, uh, who are pro-choice to office, well, anybody can join. Um, you could go on their website, you can look it up, you can put in your information and then give them a donation, and then you're a member. Um, so in some cases, it's just as simple as, as uh, the group finding you or you seeking out the group and joining. In other cases, there are, there are actual rules that you have to follow. Um, you know, if it's a corporate political action committee, um, you know, you're not going to just join the Microsoft pack, right? <laughs> you know, you're going to be, going to be somebody that's connected to the, um, you know, to the corporation itself. And that's, uh, you know, without boring the audience too much, you have what are called connected and non-connected packs. So Emily's list, which I just mentioned, that's a non-connected pack, meaning it's not connected to a corporation or a union. You, you know, as an, as an everyday citizen, you can join a non-connected pack when it's a connected pack, then, um, then there are different rules about, you know, who can be in and who can't. And so for someone who, if someone were to join an interest group or one of these PACs, is this like a year round, you know, you're being active, you're, you know, you're being engaged year round, or, you know, is this something that people can just take the time and do, you know, around election time? Or, you know, is this something that if you want to join this, this is something, you know, you kind of need to be dedicated to. No, I mean, it's really up to each individual uh, to, to decide okay. how much time and effort they want to put into it. Um, I mean, there's a um, one political scientist talked about what what, uh, what what we call empty calorie participation in an interest group. And what does that mean? Well, that means, you know, my I don't feel like knocking on doors, right? I don't mm -hmm. have the time, the energy or the desire to go knock on doors for an interest group to advance their cause. So what do I do? I write a check, you know, sort of empty calorie participation. Well, if you have enough money, you know, <laughs> you could write, you could write a lot of checks throughout the year, you right. know, Hey, here you go again. Here's another hundred dollars or here's a thousand dollars. And, you know, if you're very wealthy, um, you could be participating quite a bit, right? right? Through empty calorie participation, like writing a check. And by the way, groups, I don't mean to disparage that either. Groups love getting checks. Uh, they need money to survive and to function. So those those donations are much appreciated. But if you're talking about um, the more, you know, the, you know, sort of the, um, the a, a, a more committed um, effort in terms of time uh, when it comes to, say, again, you know, volunteer work for the group, whether it's, again, knocking on doors, maybe joining a protest. You know, some groups uh, get involved in, in protest politics as well. Um, you know, you know, you know, putting your body on the line in a protest, that's, um, you know, that's, that's a commitment mm -hmm. and not everyone's willing to make that. And again, that, you know, organizations and groups will, um, um, it will really leave it up to that individual to decide. Gotcha. Well, I think that's all the questions that we had for you today regarding um, interest groups and lobbying and, and kind of the topics we wanted to touch on. So we really appreciate you joining us for this uh, another episode of What the Politics. And um, Dr. Francia will also um, 
be with WNCT all day today. He will be live with some of our anchors doing live um, question and answers um, throughout the day, getting ready for the um, election tonight. Um, So stay tuned with WNCT. Stay tuned with What the Politics and our WNCT podcast network. All right. Thanks, guys. And join us next week for another episode.